All right, Alexander, let's do a Ukraine update. Missile strikes on Monday from Russia. Kind of, uh, it seems like we're in a routine now with these on again, off again, weekly missile strikes. We had drone strikes from Ukraine into Russia. Three as of this moment of this recording. Uh, Saratov, uh, Ryazan and um, Kursk, I Kursk, believe, are the Kursk, three. Yeah. And, and, and two of them were very, very deep into Russian yeah. territory. Mm. And we have uh, Bakhmut. We also have on the geopolitical front uh, oil price caps, a potential ninth uh, sanctions package, most likely next week. That'll be uh, a done deal as well. We also have uh, Lincoln, Congress. They're trying to figure out a way to label Russia as a state sponsor of terror without labeling Russia as a state sponsor of terror. We've had some announcements there, but it's very hard to understand what uh, what they're cooking up. They, boy, do they want to label Russia a state sponsor of terror, but boy, do they understand that if they actually do it, they're in for a world of hurt. So they're trying to figure out how can we virtue signal? How can we do this thing, which we want to do so much without having it uh, wreck our geopolitical position? Anyway, um, what else do you have in mind? Where do you want to start? Well, should we well, I, should I, we start as always with what's going on on the ground or, or what? Uh, absolutely. And I, I mean, the big news are the missile strikes yesterday, which, as you said, are now becoming routine. I mean, the Russians now basically do one big strike like this every week. Sometimes they do a bigger one. Uh, yesterday's was a routine, it was about 70 missiles. Ukraine likes to say they shot down 60 of the 70 missiles, and then they admit that 17 targets were <laughs> destroyed, or at least so I understand, which makes their arithmetic difficult to follow. The, the missile strikes are now becoming routine. They're becoming more effective in the sense that this is a cumulative problem. Temperatures are falling across Ukraine, shortages of water. I mean, the whole thing is just, it's becoming harsher and more difficult for Ukraine all the time. But it's something we've talked about many times. We've talked about these missile strikes. So I suggest that we focus on the new event, which was these counter strikes that Ukraine launched deep into Russia. Now, we have now quite a lot of information about these strikes, which is that they were carried out with an adaption of the Soviet-era Strij um, jet-powered drone. I, by the way, from the Cold War, I remember, you know, we've got you know, all about these Soviet jet-powered drones. They were the sort of things that, you know, the Daily Express and the Daily Mail used to write about. We used to have them flying over the North Atlantic, and, you know, people got quite scared of them at that time. So it's quite weird, eerie for me to see them all coming back now and being used in this way. But let's put that aside. So the Ukrainians have adapted these drones. Supposedly they have around 150 and are now using them or trying to use them to launch deep strikes into Russia. Now, I think this is a big deal. And first of all, I'm going to say a few things. I mean... There's some issues, again, with Russia's air defense systems. 
And we've got to say this. I mean, these missiles were able to travel across Russia hundreds of kilometers. They do so at transonic speeds. Sometimes they're going at, you know, over supersonic speeds, sometimes you know, slightly below that. But anyway, they're, they're flying towards these targets in a straight line. Um, they're flying quite low, but not very low. And the Russians claim that they shot them down basically when they reached these two very important air bases. Engels is perhaps the single most important air base in Russia and previously in the Soviet Union because it is the base in Saratov where uh, the big, heavy, long-range bombers, the bombers that can reach the United States that are part of Russia's strategic triad are based. The other air base in Ryazan is a rather less important base, but it's still a very important base. You have there the big medium-range bombers, the Tupolev 22Ms, um, which are the backfire bombers with the huge anti-ship missiles. So these are two very, very, very important bases. Now, as, I, as we've talked about before, we discussed this um, when, he did it, when we appeared on Jimmy Dore's show, and there's been one or two other people who say this. If these are bases where Russia's strategic triad is located, these big, heavy bombers, it is highly likely, in fact, I would go further, I would say it is a virtual certainty that Russia keeps nuclear facilities there. I mean, you know, if they have to alert their bombers to go up, fly in the middle of an air alert with the United States, a confrontation with the United States, I'm assuming that they're going to want their nuclear weapons, the nuclear bombs, the nuclear cruise missiles close to hand. So it's likely that these are nearby. Now, you would have thought that the Russians would not want to allow Ukrainian missiles to get close to these bases. And yet, they were allowed to get close to these bases. So, to me, there is something clearly very wrong. Now, the Russians also say that they shot these two missiles down. I'm going to call them missiles. Um, and we've now had satellite photos, and that seems to bear that out. We don't see big craters. We don't see that kind of damage. We see the kind of damage that's done from debris falling. But note that in Engels, four people were killed as a result of this falling debris from this shot-down cruise missile. Now, that suggests that there was no air, uh, air raid alert in Engels, the big base, before the missiles arrived and got shot down, so that all these people were wandering around on the runways um, and, you know, they were taken completely by surprise. Now, Russia has the best air defence system in the world. We've seen how effective it is over Ukraine in the fighting in Ukraine itself. Something clearly went seriously wrong. I mean, that's the only explanation I can think of. And I think that there's going to be deep discussions, investigations, inquiries as to what it was exactly that did go wrong. Because I, everything about this thing points to my mind to a major mess up. And bear something else, it's highly likely that the Ukrainians knew that the Russians were about to launch this big missile strike. They clearly launched their cruise missiles um, 
in anticipation of the Russian strike. So clearly the Ukrainians are getting a lot of intelligence about Russian missile movements, and I think that's something that nobody is at all surprised about because they're getting information from the US and all of those countries. But the big story is problems with the Russian air defence system. And the other big story is utter irresponsibility on the part of Ukraine that they're prepared to launch missile strikes like this against air bases where almost certainly cruise mis uh, nuclear weapons are stored. Is that the point of, of this uh, missile drone strike? I mean, the U.S. obviously greenlit this. I, mean, I, I would be I, I don't, okay. I don't want to say obviously. I would be shocked if the U.S. did not green like this. Maybe they didn't, but I would imagine that they someone very high up. You mentioned this uh, on the Jimmy Dore show. Someone very high up obviously would have said, "Okay, go for it, guys." That would be my okay. That would be my guess. Um, anyway, uh, is the purpose of this for NATO for the United States to use Ukraine as a way to probe? Uh, Russia's weaknesses? Yes, I think that's exactly what it is. And I mean, you know, they've, they've demonstrated that there are weaknesses. I mean, a, a, a creaky old Soviet era high speed jet powered drone, you know, we're told that it was flying at relatively low altitudes. But the Soviet, Russian, sorry, air defense system should have been able to spot a drone like this. I mean, this is angles. I mean, this is not any air base. It's not any airfield in Russia. This is an important, this is a key facility. And clearly it wasn't properly secured, despite the fact that the Russians are fighting a war in Ukraine. And I mean, that does astonish me. I mean, it does make me wonder what was going on. Probably, I mean, I'm guessing now that there was an awful lot of preparation and um, organization being done in preparation of this missile strike on Ukraine and somebody lost the ball because they were focused on the missile strike on Ukraine and they weren't paying any attention to the need to defend the bases. But of course that is an explanation, but it is not an excuse. It shows, as I said, weaknesses in the Russian command and air defense systems, or so it seems to me. Yeah, well, it also shows that within a day, um, Ukraine managed to launch three strikes and hit three different airfields. Now, say what you want about the drones. They're old. They're Soviet. Um, okay, you, you can say that, but uh, they still managed to hit Russian territory. And actually, Absolutely. I would say that's even worse, the fact that they're old and they're Soviet. Um, oh, you know, what about new? What about new mm -hmm. and modern? Is that going to pose an even greater problem for, well, for Russia? And, and then you have the fact that I've heard um, Saratov region, I think I read it, something like 650 yeah. kilometers from, yes. uh, from Ukraine. I mean, we, yeah. I went to a map to see it. I mean, we're talking yeah. Volgograd. Absolutely, I mean, this is, well, this is not it, Kursk. It, it, it's further from Ukrainian territory than Moscow is, just to give some idea. So, I mean, you know, if you can send a missile all the way to Angles in Saratov, then you can reach Moscow. And, I mean, that that's perhaps the thing to bear in mind. Now, as I understand it, the two uh, missiles that struck um, um, Ryazan and Saratov 
Engels and the base in Sarata for these two adapted old Soviet missiles. The one, the drone that was used to attack Kursk, that was a, apparently a much smaller, lighter drone. Kursk is quite close to the Ukrainian border. The, and there's also, by the way, been a drone attack on Sevastopol, uh, on Ukraine, on Crimea as well. But that apparently was unsuccessful. But the point is, whatever you may think, this does point up, highlight again, problems in the Russian air defense system. And again, you know, a jet-powered drone operating over hundreds of kilometers and nobody shoots it down before it reaches angles. I mean, this is... I mean, I, I mean, I, I have to say, I find that this shows major weak, a major weakness. I mean, it, 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 it clearly points to a major flaw in the Russian command system. It looks as if somebody got distracted, wasn't paying attention. Probably they didn't think that the Ukrainians would do this thing. Probably they didn't expect that the Ukrainians would do this thing. Probably they've been given assurances by someone in Washington that this kind of thing won't happen. And they weren't, and they, you know unwisely, it seems incredible, accepted those kind of assurances. But absolutely, I mean, these old, creaky Soviet drones from the 1970s, I mean, they're not stealth, they're not modern, they can't manoeuvre, they fly in a straight line, they're, as I said, transonic. They should be an easy target for what is cracked up to be and what every indication suggests is the best air defense system in the world. So how did it happen? And again, I mean, one has to ask those questions. And you would have thought that um, Engels, especially, of all the air bases in Russia, would be the most thoroughly defended and, uh, you know, far away from the far from away from the front lines as it is but they'd be thoroughly defended not you know against these creaky old soviet drones that ukraine might be launching against it but against you know proper western drones i mean you know what might have happened if you know if it'd been tomahawk missiles something like that i mean you know so something something went seriously wrong and i agree if it's Soviet, creaky old Soviet drones, it's a worse. It's actually worse than if it had been, you know, modern American drones. So it's a, it's a bad look. It's a bad look. And um, as I would have thought that Putin, when he gets back from Crimea, he probably is already back in Moscow from Crimea. He inspected the Crimean bridge and all that, and it's been repaired very fast. And there's an example of Russian efficiency. But I'm, I'm sure that he must be extremely angry. There must be all kinds of discussions about this going on in Moscow. And I presume people have been carpeted. Probably some people are going to be sacked because, to be frank, I mean, this was a debacle. I mean, the fact that the missiles were shot down at the, you know, right at the edge of the airfields. Well, the worst possible disaster of these missiles landing on these bases was avoided. But I mean, in every other respect, this looks bad. Yeah, there's so much to go off on. The, the fact that Putin was in Crimea to to display a positive PR yeah. spin, that's why he went there, yeah. Yeah. and you had this happen is is a PR disaster, in my opinion, Absolutely. because he's there to, to, to put a positive spin on things, and then you have this happen while he's there. That's, that's point number one. Um, the, the fact that, you know, going off of what you said, that this could have been, and we don't know, but this could have been 
a, a breakdown in, uh, in, in command and communication. Someone wasn't taking the threat seriously and protecting Engels seriously. That looks awful. That, that to me, if that is the case, and we don't know, uh, if that is the case, though, that shows that once again, you, you, can, you can go back to the argument that many analysts say, which is that Russia is not taking this conflict seriously. I mean, you could you can infer that. I'm not saying, once again, I'm not saying that is the case. And we're just having a discussion here. But you could infer that. They're, they're, not, they're not protecting angles sufficiently. They're not taking the threat seriously. Thus, they're not taking this conflict seriously. You could... Uh, you could definitely uh, make that um, inference. And um, I, I wanted to say one other thing, Alexander, but I completely, uh, it completely slipped my mind yeah. now. Well, but, let, let, um, me deal, let me it, deal it also, with that it, and then it, maybe it, you'll remember it. Yeah, yeah. yeah deal with that and maybe yeah. I'll remember my, my, mean, my, I, I, la- I, I, my final comment question to you. Yeah. I think, I think that the idea that the Russians weren't taking the war seriously was probably true or, or possibly true a couple of months ago. I mean, you know, in the, in the, in the su- late summer, um, you know, clearly things were being allowed to run down. I don't think that's true anymore. All the indications are that, you know, they've called up hundreds of thousands of men. They've appointed apparently a very tough and capable commander. They're capturing ground. I mean, we're going to talk about Bakhmut in a moment. They're doing all kinds of things there, which suggests that they're taking it very seriously now. Indeed. But... The further away we get from the front lines, it's clear that, uh, you know, uh, an attitude of complacency and model and peace still reigns and that they don't they still can't bring themselves to understand, you know, further away that they are from the battlefields, that this is a real danger and that they're really dangerous things and that they're dealing in Kiev with people who are both reckless and resourceful and who have political backing in the United States from, you know, people, hardliners there, who are prepared to take extraordinary risks. I mean, we saw that with the incident with the missile that landed in Poland, for example. I mean, you know, uh, almost within minutes of it happening, we had somebody from the intelligence community contacting Associated Press, spreading stories that might have led to, well, who knows what, but backing the Ukrainian version of events. So one wonders what has to happen before the entire military system finally is shaken up to the point where they decide that they have to take these kind of precautions. I'm going to say something else. I mean, I would have thought, I mean, I speak now as a complete civilian, that given how important Angles is, it would be incredibly well defended at any time, even in the most peaceful exactly, times. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you would have thought that I would have thought you'd know, be ringed by radar stations and service to air missile bases and all sorts of things of that kind. Bear in mind, this missile can't maneuver. So it was moving towards angles in a straight line. And, you know, I wonder what was going on. I mean, you know, were, were all these people tracking it, reporting to Moscow? You know, we're seeing this missile. What are we supposed to do with it? I mean, it, you know, one wonders whether perhaps there's problems with the command and control system. Perhaps somebody in Moscow was asleep. Perhaps, you know, 
local commanders are not given the autonomy to make decisions about shooting down things like this, which they should be, by the way. But, you know, I, I, you know, I don't have answers to that. And probably we won't get full answers about what actually happened. But regardless of that, I mean, it does once again highlight flaws in the Russian air defence system. Um, it reminded me a little bit, I must say this, of an incident that happened in the mid-1980s when uh, a German, uh, a, a young German, flew all the way to Moscow in a you know sort of plane and landed his plane on Red Square. And apparently the entire Soviet air defence system was tracking him, telling him to go back. And nobody in the entire military structure could make up their mind what to do. And, uh, you know, a whole lot of people got sacked then. And I wonder whether a whole lot of people will get sacked this time. Yeah, OK, so I remember what uh, what I wanted to ask you. You said that perhaps they, uh, the Russians were getting assurances from the United States, from NATO, that um, that they weren't going to that, that under no circumstances would Ukraine uh, strike deep into Russian territory. And we've actually heard that from the uh, from the United States, from the Pentagon, from NATO. We don't want Ukraine to strike deep into Russian territory. We're not going to give Ukraine long range missiles. In no way are we going to going to allow Ukraine to strike Russian territory. And they've been saying that since the beginning of this conflict, and they've been very consistent in saying that. And just the other day, we had an article from the Wall Street Journal, which said that according to their sources, the, uh, the, the, the Pentagon, the high Mars that they gave to, uh, to Ukraine, 20 high Mars, they secretly disabled their ability, software and hardware, to, uh, to be able to fire um, missiles long range. This is what the Wall Street Journal reported just the other day. So my question to you is, are there people still in Russia's command and in power in Russia that perhaps are getting duped? Yeah. Because the West may be saying these things, and maybe there are factions in the Pentagon in the U.S. that really do not want Ukraine to strike deep into Russia. But I'm also positive that there are factions in the collective West, in NATO, in the Pentagon, in the Department of State, that absolutely want Ukraine to strike deep into Russian territory. Now, we've talked about this at length, which faction uh, wins when they go up against each other. But um, I think what you said is very plausible that the Russian command was getting assurances, don't worry, we're not going to, to allow Ukraine to strike deep into their territory. They believed it. Because maybe there's a bit of a hangover in Russia with regards to we, we still trust the West. We still trust our partners in America and our partners in Europe. And when Macron and Schultz talk about security guarantees, I know they've sanctioned us. I know they're waging war on us. I know they're giving Ukraine weapons and money. But perhaps there's still this hangover effect of we still should believe them. Or let's yes. still trust them. I mean, do you think something like that could be oh, absolutely, played? absolutely? And I'm going to make a guess. Actually, I think that these assurances have been given by the U.S. military to the Russian military, and I think the Russian military, or some people in the Russian military, believe these assurances because they want to believe them. And I think that they were duped. And that Wall Street Journal story actually 
far from being reassuring, ought to ring alarm bells, because we're going to talk about factions here. Now, the United States has at Hackham's 300-kilometer missiles, which they've said they're not going to supply to Ukraine under any circumstances. So if they say that, why are they modifying the HIMARS launchers to make it impossible for Ukraine to launch Atakam's missiles from those launchers. Well, the only explanation that makes any kind of sense is that somebody in Washington, in the Pentagon, absolutely does not want Ukraine to launch Atakam's missiles from those launchers, but knows perfectly well that other people in Washington want to do precisely that thing. So it may be that the Pentagon can block supplies of Atakam's launchers from, say, the United States, but other people in Washington, and we're not going to name names, but, you know, let's say the State Department, are going to talk to Latvia. Or, I mean, I'm not, I don't know who has Atakam's missiles, but somebody, Britain, for example, and that they will supply those Atakam's launchers instead, missiles instead. So they've actually, in effect, sabotaged the launchers that they themselves provided to make that impossible. Now, that says that there is factions, that there are people in the West and probably in the United States, almost certainly in the United States, who are actually keen on deep-level attacks on Russian territory. So if you are a Russian leader, by now you should know that Western assurances are worthless. These kind of assurances you absolutely cannot and should not rely upon. So if the Americans come along, if General Milley telephones General Gerasimov, the chief of the Russian general staff, and tells him, well, you know, Valery, please be assured we're not going to send any long-range missiles to Ukraine. We don't want the Ukrainians doing anything like this. What Gerasimov should say to himself, well, it's very nice to hear that from General Milley, but I'm paying absolutely no attention. I'm making sure that all my bases are fully secured. And that clearly didn't happen. Exactly. Exactly. I, I think it's it's something along those lines. Absolutely. And there's still that that desire to want to believe in their partners in the West. And yes. I think that's well, that's throughout all the ranks of the uh, of the Russian government. From top to bottom, I think there are still a lot of people who have still not understood what you said, which is. Don't believe a word they're telling you, you know, even after Minsk 1 and Minsk 2 and NATO expanding east, after everything that they've done, you still have that effect of, well, they told us that yes. they're going to uh, disable the high mars. So, you know, let's believe them and we can slack off a little bit here and there and, and, and you know, cut corners. But it's, yeah. you, you, you know, it, it's a it's that psychology. I, yes, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of them hanker back to the period of the Cold War when the Soviet Union and the United States were co-evil superpowers and they did do deals with each other. And by and large, they stuck, both sides stuck by those deals. And they long for the day when that will happen. But of course, that was a different time and a different United States and a different geopolitical situation. And today, everything is completely different. And I think Putin himself... I mean, the penny dropped with him some time ago. I think he 
has gradually come to understand that deals he makes with the West aren't really going to, aren't worth the paper they're written on. I think the same with Lavrov. But I suspect others who've had fewer dealings with the West still can't quite bring themselves to believe that if you're getting an assurance from, you know, I, I'm not getting this, I'm not saying it was General Milley, but from someone in the West, don't pay any attention. And if you hear that the high Mars launchers have been adapted to make deep strikes impossible, that shouldn't be a reassurance. It should be a warning. <laughs> it should tell you that there's somebody else in Washington or and somebody else in the West who absolutely does want to launch these kind of deep strikes. Anyway, that's what's happened. I mean, you know, we can spend more time analysing this, but I think no, overall, no, let's... overall, they, they, I mean, you know, I, I'm assuming that from now on they will tighten up and make sure that this kind of thing doesn't happen again. Yeah, OK, so that's a good segue. I, I don't know if you want to say something about an expected retaliation or the pressure on Putin to retaliate. That's why I don't know if you want to mention something really quickly there with regards to these strikes. What's the political pressure on Putin now to act, if any? Maybe there isn't any. And it's a good segue to also talk about uh, the sweet talking from Macron and Scholz, a type of sweet talking to Russia where they say, well, we, we need to consider security guarantees now. And, you know, they're coming out with statements like that. And um, we can, you, you may want to discuss, uh, actually, I think it's important to discuss the, uh, an update on the, on the sanctions package after the, after the price cap, uh, after the oil price cap, we now have a ninth sanction package coming into effect. And of course, the uh, Department of State, along with Congress, trying to, uh, to figure out how to label Russia a state sponsor of terror without actually labeling them a state sponsor. Of exactly. I, I, I'm going to guess how they're going to try and do that, by the way, how they're going to square that impossible circle, which is they're now maneuvering to get a, dec uh, um, a, a resolution through the General Assembly to set up some kind of uh, the UN General Assembly to set up some kind of court to uh, carry out war crimes, um, prosecutions of Russian officers. Problem is, the General Assembly doesn't have the jurisdiction to do that. I mean, that the Security Council can do it. The General Assembly clearly does not. So it would have no legal basis. So it would you could set up a court, but it would have no legal basis. It could, you know, issue indictments. Russians would shrug their shoulders and ignore it. But it's a way of piling on pressure, if you like. Uh, giving the impression that you're acting in a kind of legal legal way. But, of course, you're not doing the very dangerous thing of labelling Russia a terrorist state, because if you did that, then, of course, all diplomatic connect contacts would have to stop, and they don't dare do that. So they're, 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 they're trying to square the circle with these elaborate legal fictions, which nobody, I think, takes terribly seriously. So that's that's all I'm going to say about that, but that's right. an example of the kind of, you know, the way in which the kind of trap that they they got themselves into. I think the Macron-Schultz things are quite interesting because, and I think, by the way, they are connected to the oil price cap idea because the Western powers, on the one hand, I mean, they're getting the news from Ukraine, they're getting the news from the battlefronts, they see that Ukraine is, its, its economy is now in a, well, it ha hardly exists anymore to any intent and, intents and purposes. I mean, it, it functions 
purely on Western aid now. And um, the military situation is clearly going wrong. I'm, we're, we're, we're getting absolutely horrific pictures from the Bakhmut front. We see hundreds of people apparently dying, getting wounded in the most dreadful conditions. There was a reporter from Corriera della Sera, an Italian newspaper, telling us how bad things are in Bakhmut. Another um, um, from the Daily Express, or talking to a Ukrainian military officer, telling us how bad things are in Bakhmut. And we've also got a report from the Russian Defense Ministry confirming now that a whole string of settlements have been captured. And we've seen more and more indications of Russian military build-up in this area of Donbass. Um, those you know, hundreds of thousands of reservists are gradually being assembled, put together. I have heard one report, by the way, that if the Russians intend to deploy some of these troops in new military formations, then we've still got several weeks before the whole process is completed. But anyway, we can see that. We can also see reports about how Russian military, the Russian military is now deploying in ever bigger numbers in Belarus. Lukashenko has talked about the fact that the Russian and Belarusian military have merged. That was quite an extraordinary statement from Lukashenko. So that begs questions about what's going on there. And lastly, and I think you probably saw it as well, a report this morning that the uh, troops in Donbass have received delivery of 200 T-90M tanks, very advanced Russian tanks, which is apparently about the size of the total remaining Ukrainian tank fleet. At least that's what this report said. So you can see all of this built up. Schultz, Macron can see that. They've just got this oil price gap, which we'll come to in a moment. They may think that might give them a little bit more leverage. So they're coming up with all this sweet talk now about, you know, we want some kind of deal. So Schultz says, if we get this deal, the war ends, we go back to the way things were before the war. He's also written a long article for, I think it was Foreign Affairs, in the United States saying we must avoid a cold war at any cost. This isn't where we want to be. We can't have blocks again. We, we've got to go back. We, we've got to avoid a cold war. And there's even a suggestion that he came back, he's come up with an incredibly elaborate idea whereby Moldova gets Transnistria, Russian, the Russians keep Zaporozhye and Kherson region and Donbass and their land bridge to Crimea, all kinds of far-fetched and bizarre things, which I'm not even sure that's true, by the way. But anyway, it's the kind of thing you can imagine. And you have Macron talking about security guarantees and all of that. Now, the backdrop to all of this in Europe is a gathering economic crisis. We've been talking about that quite a lot. In Britain, we are perhaps the most exposed. We are in the middle of a strike wave. Railways are closing. Postal systems are closing. Lots of these problems. They're looking forward to the fact that energy prices are probably going to start rising again in a few months. They're trying to use this brief interval to start some kind of negotiations going to try to find some kind of off-ramp. But the problem they have is twofold. 
On the one hand, the Russians aren't interested. Um, we've had a whole succession of statements now from Peskov. He said that there's, that's Putin's spokesman. He said that the Europeans are not coming up with anything concrete. We haven't seen any real sign of any shift in position. So, you know, we're, we, we, you know, we're not interested. And you have Blinken on the other side, and he's undoubtedly representing here the hardliners in the United States, talking about a genuine peace and not some phony off-ramp, which suggests that he doesn't agree with Schultz and Macron. The one thing he did say, which I thought was interesting, was that he's now talking about the Russians ret retreating back to their lines, their 24th of February lines. So he, that does seem to say, even Blinken seems to accept Crimea and the original territories of the two breakaway republics, the Donetsk and Lugansk republics would remain out of Ukraine's reach. But anyway, that's also, of course, unacceptable to the Russians. So the hardliners in Washington and in Britain, not interested in negotiations. Kiev, not interested in negotiations. Russians, unimpressed by these demands for negotiations. Schultz, Macron, suddenly perhaps realising the trap they've walked themselves into, trying to find some phony off-ramp, to use Blinken's phrase, coming up against the fact that nobody takes them seriously anymore. Yeah. A comment on uh, political pressure for uh, Putin with regards to yeah. everything that's happened? The yeah, now this day. is in... Does he, no, does he need is, to retaliate or can he... Can he yeah, I think, he, I, th I think that the pressure on him is growing. Now, there's been a lot of talk in the West, in some parts of the media here, about a report from Medusa. This is a Russian dissident website. And they claim that they've got their hands on the results of a secret opinion poll carried out by the Russian um, secret services, which has been reported to the Kremlin. Now, I'm not sure this is true, by the way. But it, if it is true, it's interesting. Because it, it sh shows that 52% of Russians want negotiations to end the war. 24, 25% don't want negotiations. And Medusa spins this, and people in the West spin it, as a sign that, you know, Russian support for the war is softening. I think it tells us the exact opposite. Because, of course, the Russian government's official position, going all the way back to the start of this military opposition uh, operation, and still now, is that they are prepared to negotiate. And only 52% of Russians, according to this opinion poll, say that they agree. That's just a bare majority. 25% don't want negotiations. They want the military, presumably they want a military, just a military solution to this conflict. My impression, and I'm getting lots of anecdotal comments from Russia, I'm also seeing the public opinion polls as well is that Russian public opinion is hardening. I got a message from somebody in Siberia who said that their people, you know, want, really feel that this is being done in a far too gentle way. They want to level the cities and, you know, do all kinds of other things. I don't want to go into the details of what people there are saying. And I think that that opinion, which is hardening all the time, is going to be even more determined to see some kind of strong response 
in in response to this attack on Engels and um, in you know deep in Saratov. So I think the pressure on Putin is growing. I think it's still containable. I think he's still very much in charge. But to reiterate again a point I've made before, a point which every other responsible observer of Russian affairs says, the threat to Putin does not come from the liberals, who, you know, pro-Western liberals in Russia. Potentially, it comes from, you know, the patriotic nationalist opinion, which think that he's been altogether too soft. And this particular incident with these strikes plays into that. Yeah, exactly. All right, we will uh, end it there. The Duran.locals.com and go to the Duran shop 10% off. Use the code good day. And we are on Rockfin as well. Link down below. Take care.